Welcome to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. I'm your host, Kristen Thomas. I'm a certified sex coach and clinical sexologist based in Kansas City. And I just love to talk to people about what goes on in their sex lives and relationships. I also enjoy good conversation about love, heartache, activism, or making change in the world. Be warned, you should probably be 18 and over and probably listening on your headphones. Thanks for tuning in. My guest on today's show is Michael Castleman. He is a sexual health and wellness journalist. He's written books, he's a blogger, and he also gives advice. You can go to a website and ask him questions at greatsexguidance.com. It's kind of funny because he actually didn't set out to do this. He was sort of told he was going to write about sexual health. And with encouragement from his girlfriend at the time, who then became his wife, he started writing about this and never looked back. I use his book, Sizzling Sex for Life, for a lot of reasons, mostly because he's just made my life a lot easier by compiling a ton of research. He's also friends with my mentor, Dr. Patty Britton from Sex Coach U, so we gushed about her for a little while. And, you know, I hope what you take away from this conversation is something that Michael pointed out, which is that everyone is truly sexually unique, therefore everything's basically normal. Okay, and he, he did also call me out a little bit on my thinking that the Midwest is more repressed than other regions of the U.S. And he said, you know, geography really doesn't limit our sexual diversity. So people uh, may tend to pool in some of the larger cities, certainly. But there's a little bit of everything everywhere. So that includes repression. Repression is everywhere. <laughs> we just need to learn to give ourselves permission to enjoy what we enjoy. And not not base things simply because they're viewed as normal. Like, don't just allow yourself, oh, well, this is normal, so it's fine. Everything is normal. All of it. Everything. As long as it's sane, safe, and consensual, you are good to go. I was really happy to have Michael on my show. He, I was very thankful. He was wonderful. I have another workshop coming up. I've been, I'm going to start doing workshops about every three weeks now. So if you happened to miss the workshop that I did yesterday, March 8th, that's okay. You can still go to my website and purchase a ticket and I will send you a video recording of yesterday's workshop. And it was setting the mood in and out of the bedroom. My next workshop is March 29th and I'm going to be running my Clitoracy 102 class again. My one-on-one is for clit owners. 102 is for clit lovers. So if your partner has a clitoris, this one is for you. My Better Sex series is designed to help make sure that no matter where you're at, if you feel like you're not so great at cunnilingus, or perhaps you have stopped participating in oral sex because you're not feeling very confident, or perhaps she has said something pointing out she's not really enjoying it, or maybe they always seem to redirect you to do other things just when you thought it was getting good. Look, again, whether you're okay or you feel like you're fantastic at stimulating a clitoris this workshop series is designed to simply help you be even better it's about upping your game that's all if you haven't picked up a copy of the pitch recently or hopped on their website don't forget that i'm now a featured monthly columnist in the pitch kansas city and 
I do feel very, very honored. And even this month, they put me on, on page two with a nice picture of me in that, that hot sequin uh, rainbow dress that I love that Nicole Bissy just, she knocked it out of the park on my pictures. I don't know, I feel like my column is doing great. It's getting good traffic. People are reaching out saying that they enjoyed it. It's brought me new clients and hopefully I have to help educate people. So if you haven't happened to check out uh, the March issue is on newsstands right now, I wrote about an adventure I had to the Strand Theater on Troost Avenue here in Kansas City. If you are from the area, you might know that that is the area's last remaining porn cinema. That was an interesting adventure I had with a friend. Again, it's on newsstands now or it will be available virtually on March 19th started writing a few other articles for them outside of my column so you can also find a feature i did about a firmware that'll be online march 18th and then i'm also doing an article about transformations kansas city which is a organization geared towards helping youth and young people that are people of color and of trans experience i i had a great time writing all my articles this month so Thank you to Michael at the Strand Theater. Thank you to Laura at Affirmaware. And thank you to Marik Jensen, JD Basares, and Kelly New from Transformations KC for talking to me about those articles. Well, let's see what else. Oh, I have been featured on a few other people's podcasts lately. So do please check out the Seeds and Stems podcast. You can find them on Instagram as well. I was on an episode about two weeks ago, and I had a great time on there talking to Andrew about sex and cannabis. I, I certainly don't feel like an expert. I guess I'm just, you know, like, I'm the local sex coach, and I'm a cannabis proponent, and I see how it helps people's sex lives. So, you know, I was a, a natural fit for a local podcast, but let me tell you, I've learned so much more since he and I talked. Uh, I feel kind of bad I didn't get the chance to do this interview before he and I talked, but then, again, I'm not... I, you know, I want to give credit where credit is due, but I got to interview Ashley Manta, the canisexual herself, for the April 420 issue of The Pitch. I'm super fucking stoked about that. I feel like I met a kindred spirit. <laughs> she and I definitely have a lot in common. I feel like I made a new friend. She was lovely. Um, anyway, so you'll get to see that one in the April pitch. Oh, back to the podcast I've been on. I was also on... Oh gosh, I really admired this gal. She calls herself Canada's dating coach. Her name is Chantelle Hyde. And she's so, so adorable, so pretty. She has a great fashion sense. She gives wonderful advice. And I've actually recommended to a few of my clients that they get her book called No More Assholes. She's written several books, in fact. And I'm, I'm about to get some signed copies of some books. That's one of my favorite things to do is get signed copies of books from authors. In fact, this book that I talked about with Michael Caslin today, I do have my own signed copy of Sizzling Sex for Life from him. I yeah, one day when I'm like Dr. Ruth's age, I'm gonna love looking over my shelf of books that have all these uh, you know, signatures in the front. Just something that I like. <laughs> but anyway, you can catch me on her podcast, check the show notes, and there's a link to the YouTube video. She talks a lot more about dating, whereas I talk a lot more about sex. So we were we were finding the place where those two things intersect. Okay, I think I've done enough shameless self-promotion for now. So on to the episode. Well, thanks for tuning in today. I am joined by Michael Castleman, and he is an author and 
journalist. He wrote his first book back in 1980 and has been blogging for Psychology Today since 2009 and has over 55 million views. And I am so happy to have him on today to talk about mostly about his most recent book called Sizzling Sex for Life. So Michael, thank you so much for joining me today and keep them coming. Kristen, thank you for having me on. Pleasure's all mine. So I, I told the listeners a little bit about you, but you know, tell me, tell me more. I mean, obviously something I want to know about is your journey writing about sexual health. I loved your intro that you had in uh, Sizzling Sex for Life talking about like a thank you to someone who got you to first start writing about sex. Yeah. How did, how did you become a sexual health journalist? Well, I was doing uh, health and medical journalism. Uh, in the early 1970s for a community newspaper in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I had gone to college. And Valentine's Day was coming up, and the editor of the paper said, Mike, we need to sell some advertising. (laughs) And so for Valentine's Day, I want to run a big feature on the cover that says how to make love. And since you're the health and medical guy, I want you to write it. Okay. (laughs) I uh, immediately refused. I said, hey, I'm 23 years old. What do I know? And he said, well, (laughs) you live with your girlfriend, don't you? I said, yes, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert in sex. And we uh, went back and forth and I said I wouldn't do it. And I left and I left the office and I walked home. It was about a 10 minute walk. And when I got home, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, we've been Mm -hmm. together over 50 years, she said to me, what do you mean you won't write that article on sex? Listen, Mike, you might learn something. (laughs) What had happened (laughs) is um, the editor uh, knew my girlfriend Mm -hmm. and called her up as I was walking home and said, you've got to convince him to write this story. So um, she did convince me. And I did learn a thing or two, and uh, it helped our sex life. And I've been writing about sexuality, not exclusively, but I've been writing about sexuality ever since 1973. Wow, 1973. And I just only say wow, simply because I know how much more information we've gained, how much more knowledge we have now, uh, thanks to research. So I'm sure that you have seen quite an evolution since 1973, oh, yeah. talking about sexual health. Yeah, and in the 19, early 1970s, people don't remember, but um, Masters and Johnson, the first really truly scientific sex researchers, mm-hmm. published their first book, Human Sexual Response, in, uh, I think it was 1968. And, um, and then they published their second book with, that described the invention of sex therapy, human sexual inadequacy, in 1970. And that book came out in paperback in like 71. Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, not exactly on the ground floor, but pretty close to it mm-hmm. in terms of being a journalist focusing on sexuality. And at the time, there was very little sex research published. Um, but now there are half a dozen uh, peer reviewed journals focused on sexuality and many, many other uh, medical journals and psychological journals also uh, focus on sex research. 
So today we have the, uh, the most sex research available that there's ever been in the entire history of humanity. What a time to be alive. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, that is really the basis of your newest book, right? Sizzling Sex for Life. It's sort Correct. of, a, I've described it as being a compendium of all this research that's out there. So tell me more about your, your book. Well, Sizzling Sex for Life is sort of um, a capstone of my career. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm 72. I'm not going to be doing this for that much longer. Um, but I wanted to collect all the best sex research that has been published over the last 70 years into a encyclopedic work that's not encyclopedia. It's not A to Z, mm -hmm. but it's... I strive to be as comprehensive as possible and to make sex research uh, accessible and palatable mm -hmm. to general readers. Most, yes. you know, every once in a blue moon, a sex study gets, makes it out of the rarefied journals and into the uh, mainstream news media. Mm -hmm. But the mainstream news media publish fewer than 1% report on fewer than 1% of sexuality studies. Hmm. And there's tremendous research going on uh, in a field that is increasingly female. Uh, the original sex researchers, after Masters and Johnson, who were a man and woman team, mm -hmm. uh, for about 25 years, the vast majority of sex research was done by men. Mm -hmm. uh, now that's completely flipped. And uh, women are... Um, foremost in um in the field and the um, major centers of sex research in this country for example indiana university and mm -hmm. uh, university of british columbia um, are uh, led by women researchers and uh, so i wanted to um, report on all this research that most people have no idea about but is out there. And, um, and when you look at it, it forms a coherent whole about the ingredients of great sex and how to resolve the large majority of sex problems. The great thing about sex problems and sex therapy is that unlike a lot of things in medicine, in sex therapy, almost everybody gets better. Mm -hmm. Now, you may not wind up with the love life that you dream of, but starting from where you are with uh, sex information and sex therapy, about 90% of people do get better, mm -hmm. no noticeably better, and they'll say, yes, I'm better. And so it's an optimistic field that, that mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, unlike a lot of medicine where people often don't get better in yes. sex therapy, mm -hmm. um, people usually do. Yes. Yes. That is one of the wonderful things about, well, I mean, I'm a sex coach, but rarely ever do I have people leave and say like, that didn't help me at all. I mean, they maybe didn't do the work and they didn't get as far as they wanted, but you're correct. It's not like we are, um, we are not taking people's lives in our hands. With right. this and stuff. when, 
when I say sex therapy, uh, I mean that globally to include mm-hmm. sex coaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, sex coaching is um, a relatively new wrinkle in sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I'm friendly with the inventor of sex coaching, Patty Britton. Yes, um, my mentor. Yes. And uh, the difference between sex coaching and sex therapy is generally that um, sex coaches work with people who are basically okay, but need some help. Yes. Sex therapists work with people who are being driven crazy by something and have sexual issues that may be um, part of a constellation of emotional issues. And so it's sort of two levels. Yes. Um, and, uh, and both are equally valid and both are equally helpful. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a great way to describe it. Absolutely. It's very close to how I describe it to people, but saying like that, that constellations, I often say if it's something that's been pervasive, you know, and it's led to other things, that's a great way to put it. Yes. Um, you know, back to your book, talking about like how you made it so palatable. I actually sectioned off chapter 11 about does circumcision reduce men's sexual sensitivity? And that, you know, that's something there has been probably a lot more research on and say some, some female sexual issues simply because <laughs> I'm sure you can agree with me here. We do a lot more research about men's bodies and sexual function than we do, you know, the female body. So um, you made it to where, you know, you are showing like surveys in Africa showing no sexual impact and studies showing sexual impairment also question, but you're, you weren't trying to necessarily take sides. You're trying to present, here's what this study, which is a valid study showed. Um, you are trying to break it down between, you know, here's this perspective and here's that perspective and here are the different things to note about it. Right. Uh, I really, I really, <laughs> there have been some things in here, especially in some of the deeper conversations that I've had with clients where I really need to not just, I need to make it clear that it's not about my opinion about what I think could help them have greater understanding or come to a conclusion on their own. I need to be able to provide them with the research. Right. And the, you know, in our day and age, truth itself is under attack. And it's often difficult to discern what is the real truth. And yeah. in sex research, and also a lot of people are intimidated by reading re- the research literature. It's written in a very arcane and obscure and obfuscating academic style. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. And so it's hard to get into it. Uh, but I'm, I've spent my life as a journalist, and the role of a journalist is to translate the arcane into the accessible. Mm-hmm. And I've also had a lot of experience in um, reading medical research and sex research and learning what is credible and what is not. Yeah. I mean, you know, you read uh, headlines in a newspaper and it says a new study shows that. And the, uh, uh, and people reading it think, well, if it's a study, it must be true. Well, it turns out that um, a great deal of research in medicine and sexuality is trivial or wrong, or they ask the wrong questions in the wrong way, and mm-hmm. they come up, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you go yes. in yes. with um, <laughs> the wrong idea, you come out with the wrong idea. So mm-hmm. in my book, I um, evaluated 
more than 2,500, 2,500 studies went into Sizzling Sex for Life. And with the hope of uh, providing some perspective on what the best research really is and what it really shows. And, and when you uh, move a lot of rock and find the nuggets, the nuggets of sex research are fairly coherent. They generally agree about what are the elements of good lovemaking and what are uh, how to um, face and resolve the normal issues of sexuality throughout the entire lifespan from, from the sexual impact of circumcision to the growing phenomenon of partner sex in nursing homes among the very old. And so everything in between, that's what uh, it's, Sizzling Sex for Life is a fairly ambitious book. In fact, uh, a number of publishers rejected it saying it's too ambitious. It's too much of an encyclopedia. Uh, but finally, one wise publisher said, you know, this is good. So I got published. It really, it is a great book. I was very appreciative to get my own signed copy last year after you came on for a sex coach, you webinar, uh, to talk right. about some of the things that you found and, uh, the elements of the book. And I am very, very appreciative as a sex coach to have this, to go to, to reference. Um, it's a great book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank for you. It. Seriously. Seriously, as, as you said, I have a background in psychology and I went to the University of Missouri, Columbia, which is very research focused. So I, I do feel like I have a good background for understanding how to actually dissect a paper, you know, like yeah. getting, getting the general public to understand how to read through a research paper. Oh, well, here's, here's the source document. Here are the people that actually did the work and here's what they have to say. People don't read that. They just, they need folks like us to help break it down and help them understand really what, what things say. And you just made it very much, very easy for me to <laughs> find reference points. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so you mentioned Dr. Patty having, um, you know, a lovely friendship with her. Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit more about how you two met and what it's been like sort of building you kind of have careers that have sort of tandemed each other. You both built right. up careers around the same time. So tell me a little bit more about your, your friendship with Dr. Patty, if you don't mind me asking. Well, Patty Britton is a wonderful sex educator based in Los Angeles. And uh, starting in the late 1970s, I think, she, um, she developed a sort of unique uh, program of sex there of sex education because she was there near Hollywood and so she made a lot of videos she made lovemaking videos she made a video about the Kama Sutra she she made wonderful videos that were um, uh, terrific I thought mm -hmm. and then through that through her video work she met her uh, husband um, who was a video producer and then they made videos together Mm -hmm. uh, and I met them at conferences. I, you know, uh, I'm one of the only journalists in the country to ever attend a sex meeting. Yes. But um, <laughs> so I, I got to know uh, Patty uh, at these meetings, and um, always thought she had uh, her head screwed on right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then eventually her husband passed away and it's very sad. Um, mm. But Patty decided that um, sex therapy is quite valid, but that there was another niche. There was another niche and she didn't exactly invent sex coaching. There were people who called themselves sex coaches before she founded Sex Coach U. Mm. But what Patty did um, was provide a coherent curriculum and uh, good support for aspiring sex coaches. And I think she's done a fantastic job. And I've, I'm such an admirer of hers that I asked her if she would write the foreword to uh, Sizzling Sex for Life, and she graciously did. And, you know, we're pals. Oh, I love that. I, I really, I truly adore Dr. Patty. Uh, I got to meet her in person for the first time in 2017 at a SAR and knew I had made the right choice with picking sex coach you. Yeah. Where I was no, going to get my education. I, I think she does a tremendous job and um, she's written, her books are good. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of uh, Patty Britton. Me too. Me too. I just, oh. I had someone come into my office recently who was thinking about doing a, a room share. She's a sex therapist here in town, but she didn't want to get her own space because she really just wanted an office space like once or twice a week, maybe. And she saw my certificate and she's like, oh, you studied under Dr. Patty Burton. Like she's legit. I was like, yes, thank you. I, I appreciate hearing that because I know I think she's legit. And just having someone who's out in that world say that maybe like, yeah, she's, she's pretty rad and she's helped influence a, a lot of people in this yeah. world. So, yeah. um, she's retiring soon. So yes. Yeah. I'll be, yeah, oh. she's turning 75 and, and, uh, she's not that she's had enough. It's just time for, to leave the stage. And, yeah. uh, but, um, I'm sure she's still going to be active in sexuality and, uh, oh, I, yeah. I love her. I'm sure she's just taking a step down from SCU so she doesn't have to worry about day-to-day -day operations. I'm sure right. that when I do go to my next AVN awards, she'll be there and <laughs> dressing oh. her leopard print, things like that. Anyway, uh, well, I tell you what, let's take just a very brief break. And when we come back, I, I want to know some of your stories. I mean, you, you mentioned that the book helps outline what great sex can really look like for couples. I want to talk a little bit more about what you know, your book indicates are good things for couples. Uh, and then what are maybe some of the most fascinating things that you've ever written about as a sexual health journalist? Sure. Okay. It's time for a quick break. I promise it'll just be a minute. So stay tuned. I'll be right back after a few words that help me get paid. So back from the break and I'm here again with Michael Castleman and Michael. Okay. I, I am sure if you've been writing about sex since 1973 and, and you said you've been blogging for psychology today since 2009, and you've got a lot of views. <laughs> what, what do you think are some of the most interesting things that you have written about? Like, I don't know if you get the chance to just pick your own topics or someone has assigned you things. You're like, what is this? But yeah, what's some of the more fascinating things that you feel like you've written about and helped educate people about? Uh, well, I think um, the more 
sex research comes out, as we become more and better informed about sexuality, what is loud and clear is that everyone is sexually unique. That's the only, the one and only universally valid sexual generalization. Everyone is sexually unique. Our sexuality is as individual as our DNA, our fingerprints, our taste in clothes, food, and movies. Yes. And, and yes, there are patterns where most people do this, but that doesn't make it better than somebody who does something different. Yes. <laughs> and as we have, as we have uh, learned that not everyone is heterosexual, not everyone is male or female, we've learned that the human race is marked by tremendous diversity. Mm -hmm. And the deeper you look into any little niche, the more diversity you find. And so that's been the big, um, I think that's been the one of the biggest revelations of sex research in the last 25 years is the uh, tremendous diversity of sexual expression. And except for what we deem illegal, um, everything else is therefore normal. There's nothing, you know, there are things that are, there are types of lovemaking that are practiced by only a small minority of people, mm -hmm. but that doesn't make them deviant. It just makes them different. Yes. And uh, so I think we need to be very humble uh, about judging anyone else's sexuality. And I think we need to be kind about judging our own. Uh, chances are, whatever you're doing is okay. Chances <laughs> are. Uh, yes. and, I, and I try to uh, normalize sexual variations and reassure people that, um, you know, chances are what you're doing is fine. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to hurt your partner. As long as it's not frankly abusive, non-consensual or illegal. Yes, you hit the nail on the head right there. I, I could not agree more. And that's often how I try to explain things to people that there, there truly is no normal because everything is normal because no matter what you like, there's people out there that have probably done it too. There's very few things I think, okay, I'm sure people can still find new things to do sexually. Absolutely. But I think we're probably at a time in a space where if you want to try it, someone else has tried it before you and enjoyed it and found oh, yeah. how to and, do it safely. Right. And the, um, the internet has played a key role in this because mm -hmm. the internet, because it allows person to person communication where none was available before uh, people who have, who are in uh, sexual minorities have been able to find each other and uh and and get support and celebrate their their little niche mm -hmm. um in a way that was not possible uh before you know the 1995 when the internet uh, took off so um yeah oh my gosh modern... you saw the rise and fall of chat rooms and like well, even before that, like the penny papers that had the ads in the back, and then it was chat rooms, and now it's that life. Right. That's right. been a the, lot of change. Uh, I mean, there was certainly, you know, gay activism before the internet, 
but yes. um, uh, the internet was critical in showing us that there are, you know, about 1% of the population is trans and that has become a big social thing. Mm-hmm. About 1% of the population, a little less than 1% of the population is asexual. Mm-hmm. They're just not interested. And uh, 40 years ago, they would have been called deviant and they would have been sent to psychiatrists who were, were going to treat their problem. Well, it's not a problem. It's just mm-hmm. a variation. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. I mean, I feel sorry for people who are asexual. I get tremendous joy from sex and most people do. But if you don't, that's okay too. Absolutely. To each, to each their own, as long as you're doing it with respect and again, consent. And I think that using that, especially that consent asterisks covers a lot of grounds on that. Um, I, I mean, being here in the Midwest, I have a lot of people who are like, okay, I've, I've heard of FetLife, but I've never been on FetLife and I don't know what to do. And I'm kind of scared. And I tell them, you know what? You're going to see a lot of things that you can't unsee if you go digging. However, if you're really just trying to learn more about what, what you like, uh, it's a good place to go to get some imagery. It's a good place to, you know, to talk with people and connect with people and find out more. Um, I don't necessarily, necessarily think that porn is a great way to explore what you may or may not be into. Cause again, sometimes you just cannot unsee some things and that can be a turnoff. And then there's of course some ethical issues there with some pornography. Uh, but I think that the forums and chat rooms on places like FetLife have provided some, some really, really interesting ways for people to interact with others who are into what they are into. Yeah. And now you mentioned the Midwest and uh, I, I live in the mid, I, I live in California now. I grew up in New York, but I spent seven years living in the Midwest where I went to college and now I'm in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a myth that there are some parts of the country that are more open sexually than others. It's totally wrong. Everything that happens in Las Vegas and San Francisco and New York happens everywhere else. I mean, there are um, uh, there there's more attention. There may be more access in yeah, other and, places. Yeah, and people who are um, people who are in sexual minorities often uh, gravitate to places like New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco, but anything you find in in the quote unquote wide open places you also find in Bogalusa and Sheboygan and uh Des Moines and you know everywhere uh human sexuality is not governed by invisible lines on geography we're we're people and uh you know if you're looking for for example a lot of people say I've had friends say, oh, there's no BDSM here. I live in, I had a friend in Vermont who said, there's no BDSM in Vermont. I said, of course there is. What are you talking about? And uh, we went to my laptop. I put in BDSM Vermont and a hundred listings showed right up. (laughs) So basically um, human sexuality is incredibly diverse and 
and but in its diversity, it's fairly uniform throughout the world. There are gay people everywhere. There are uh, there are BDSM people everywhere. There are fetish people everywhere, and um, and that's not surprising because people are people, no matter where they live. I appreciate you challenging my worldview there on thinking that like the Midwest is just super repressed by comparison. I, I actually appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, there are, there are repressed areas everywhere. There are repressed people living everywhere. And that basically comes down to their um, family and religious upbringing. And when you look at sex research, what you find is that an enormous number of people with chronic sexual issues um, have, were raised in homes and in religions that taught them that masturbation is horrible. It's a sin. It's going to send you to hell. It's going to make you crazy. Um, well, the fact is that self-sexing is everyone's original sexuality. It's how we learn yes. about pleasure. It's how we learn about our bodies. And once you uh, remove the stigma that there's something wrong with it, um, it frees a lot of people up. And I, I, on my Q&A site, I get a lot of, um, I've gotten literally hundreds of questions, almost always from men who say something like, well, I know that masturbation isn't bad, but I'm doing it twice a day. Isn't, there must be something wrong with that. <laughs> and I say to them, no, uh, as long as your solo sex does not interfere with your school, your work, your family, your life obligations, and partner sex in a committed relationship, as long as it doesn't mess up any of those, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, some people, some people love to play golf and play golf every day. Other people play golf once in a while. Other people don't play golf. Um, solo sex is very similar. It's not about mental health. It's just about how you choose to spend your free time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, the vast majority of questions that I often have from clients or Q and A's or on TikTok are from men who are curious about their masturbation habits, especially last May when I was doing video series it's about um, masturbation month. Um, yeah. May always provides some interesting questions about, you know, am I doing it too much? Uh, am I doing it wrong? Um, but yeah, I give very much the same answer as far as timing um, or how often they're doing it. But then I also do give the like, as long as you're not doing the death grip, then you're okay. <laughs> well, one of the things that recent sex research has shown is that um, everyone knows that men uh, engage in solo sex more than women. Mm -hmm. I mean, women engage in a great deal of solo sex. Yes. In fact, more than half of American women own vibrators now, more than half. Ooh, and very few of them use it use their vibrators and partner sex. The vast majority of women use vibrators by themselves the vast majority of times. Mm -hmm. But even with the enormous amount of self-sexing that women do, men do a whole lot more. And so recent sex research has asked the question, well, why? 
And what we find is that when you ask people why they engage in self-sexing, um, 80% of men will say stress relief. Mm-hmm. And only about 20% of women say that. Mm-hmm. And we are a nation that is very anxious. We are a nation of people who often feel under stress. Uh-huh. And men often take the solution into their own hands <laughs> and uh, frequently. Yeah. And, uh, and so men use masturbation for stress management. Mm-hmm. And of course, they like visual aids. So men watch a lot more porn than women mm-hmm. because uh, solo sex and pornography are, are like the double helix of DNA. They are so totally intertwined, you can't separate them. Mm-hmm. And when people say that, oh, porn is a problem, what they're often saying is, well, masturbation is a problem. Yeah. And it's not. Masturbation is not a problem in the vast majority of cases. And as a result, the vast majority of porn viewing is also equally benign. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, I've, I have definitely had conversations with clients where they bring up that porn is an issue. And oftentimes when I break it down, it's either about their, their socialization and their context, that one or both partners were told that porn is wrong at some point in their lives. One or both was told that masturbation or solo sex was wrong in their lives. And as you point out, when there's religiosity tied up into these things, it can really create some long-term pervasive uh, mindsets that are detrimental to them experiencing really beautifully connected, open sex lives. Right. And the other problem with uh, solo sex is that a lot of women believe that um, solo sex is fine for men mm-hmm. who are single. But once men couple up with women, the women should supply all their sexual needs. Yes. Uh, That's not the way it works. Um, I can't count how many times I've had clients come to me saying that like, oh, I just try to save it for them or we need to save it for each other. I'm like, oh, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. (laughs) Right. Solo sex and partner sex are similar in the in the sense that they both involve genital play, Mm -hmm. but um, they're very different. Uh, Solo sex for men is largely about stress management, while partner sex is about love. Mm -hmm. I mean, why stop eating cherry pie once you've tried blueberry? Why stop going to the mountains once you've seen the seashore? I mean, there are different pleasures in life and they have some overlapping elements, but they are different. And women do not own men's sexuality. Men do not own women's sexuality. Everyone owns their own sexuality and they're free to engage in solo sex. And the only thing they have to make sure is that their solo sex doesn't interfere with ongoing partner sex in a loving, committed relationship. I mean, you have to be sensitive to your partner. But your partner has to be sensitive to your own needs for solo sex, too. There's nothing wrong with solo sex in committed relationships. In fact, sex research shows us that the people who self-sex the most are in relationships. People who are single actually do it less. 
And why? Because when you're in a relationship, sex is more on the front burner and it's more on your mind. Uh, and if you're single and you never have partner sex, it kind of recedes for, for many people. So um, partner sex does not replace solo sex. And it's a big mistake to think that you own your partner's sexuality and can govern how much they self-sex. That's simply wrong. Preach, Michael, preach for real. <laughs> oh, I am going to have to just have some people listen to this episode because no matter how many times I have said it, they need to hear, it, I think sometimes from another source to back it up and understand like, okay, okay, okay. Uh, I, I think that that is a challenge sometimes to get clients to understand the, the self-ownership and it, you know, romanticism has sold us this idea that, you know, we're supposed to become one and then the ownership of our sexuality gets very muddled and becomes the responsibility of somebody else. I think that is one of the more challenging things to get people to, to first come to the conclusion of like, oh, I, I'm responsible for my orgasm. I am not responsible for their orgasm. They're responsible right. for theirs. I'm responsible for my own fantasies. I cannot control what they think about or what they look at when it's their own time. And, and again, I think the, the biggest thing that clients, uh, have a hard time getting past when they haven't been masturbating on their own, when they've been trying to only save sexual time for each other is they just don't understand how their libido needs it. Like we need, we got to stoke the coals, you know, we got to keep that, that fire just at a low rumble for ourselves. Right. Cause if we're trying to only have it in a partner situation, like our coals have probably mostly died out and then we're just not even going to be in the mood that they don't understand that if they have a healthy solo sex practice, all those good neurotransmitters will be flowing through their body and help fuel their desire and help fuel their libido. Right. And they'll be more comfortable with their own range of sexual response mm -hmm. and less intimidated. Uh, it's, it's, um, I agree with everything you said. We agree with each other on all that. Again, thank you so much for doing all the hard work and all the research and all the reading for us and putting this together. Uh, I one last question for you. Um, again, since you've been writing about human sexually for a long time, what's your perspective about what's different today? I guess besides the internet, I mean, what, what do you think has been some of the biggest changes that you have seen over say the last 30 to 40 years since you've been reporting about sexual health and wellness? Uh, well, in addition to diversity, um, I think that uh, there's, there's a growing realization that lovemaking, that sex used to be considered genital. Sex used to equal intercourse. Mm -hmm. uh, now we know that lovemaking is a many splendored thing and that an enormous proportion of people don't even have intercourse, but have wonderful sex. And we owe this to Viagra because uh, before Viagra was released in 1998, people felt and in and out of the sex field that at some point people just got too old for sex and stopped having it. Mm -hmm. uh, 
since Viagra's release, there's been a tremendous amount of research on older lovers. And the, um, the result of that is loud and clear that people, older lovers generally stop having intercourse. The guy has erection problems. The woman has vaginal dryness and atrophy, and it's just a hassle. You can't manage vaginal intercourse anymore, but you can still kiss, hug, cuddle, massage each other, touch each other, hand jobs, oral sex, toys, maybe some uh, kink. Uh, there are hundred million zillions of ways to play and vaginal intercourse is just one of them. Mm -hmm. And lovemaking itself is much bigger than vaginal intercourse. And so when people say, well, I, I can't get it up. Men say, I can't get it up, so I can't have sex. No, you can't get it up. So uh, try all these other ways and you can still have a great deal of pleasure. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Michael, you have been an absolutely wonderful guest. I seriously, I can't thank you enough for writing this book. Um, can you tell the people how they can find you and in, in your other books as well? How do they find you online? Uh, my books are all on amazon.com. And if you want to know a little bit more about me, you can go to amcastleman.com. And if you want my free Q&A site, that's greatsexguidance.com. Perfect. And people can also find you on, again, Psychology Today uh, to check out all of the blogs that you've written over the last, gosh, what is that? Over, over 10 years, right? 13, 13 years. 13 years. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, we, I feel like we, the people are blessed to have someone like yourself, again, who, who has the understanding capacity to help us understand what the research is really telling us. And I'm just so, I am seriously just so thankful that things are shifting. We are starting to get, you know, deeper, more robust, you know, with our sex research, what's going on these days and find out really more and more about what, what makes all of us tick and how we all tick a little bit differently. Right. So you're well, welcome back on, on. You're welcome back anytime, sir. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So Kristen's been you. pleasure. It's been my pleasure. I appreciate Take care. it so much. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Keep Them Coming with Open the Doors Coaching. Please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast and check the show notes for stuff we talked about during the episode. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Clubhouse, and TikTok, but visit my website if you want more information about me and my coaching services. You can join my safe for work or not safe for work email list, which I call the Dirty Bird. If you want less censored content about sex and relationships and want to know what I'm up to, please subscribe to that list. Send me an email, Kristen at Open the Doors Coaching, if you have a question, want to book a session, or want more information on my upcoming workshops. My theme song is original music by M. Kusa. Until next time.